0: Radcast Outdoors is made possible by the great folks at High Mountain Seasonings in Riverton, Wyoming. Go to highmountainjerky.com to check out all the great products they have. That's H-I-M-T-N jerky.com. If you want to get kind of a sample pack, I recommend the party bundle. I just did that. Some amazing options in there, and then you can get to know the spices and the kits that you may enjoy. Highmountainjerky.com or stop in and see them off of College View Drive if you're in Riverton, Wyoming. And right now, just for Radcast, listeners use promo code HMS10 that's HMS is in high mountain seasonings HMS10 to get 10% off your next order that's high mountain seasonings a Wyoming company fish on hey radcast is on hunting fishing and everything in between this is radcast
1: Outdoors from the porters 10 cast studio Here are David Merrill and Patrick Edwards.
2: All right, everybody. Welcome to another episode of RAGCAST Outdoors. I'm Patrick Edwards. I'm David Merrill. And today we're joined by Dan Thompson. He is the Large Carnivore Supervisor for the Wyoming Game and Fish Department. We're super excited to have him here. Say hi, Dan.
3: Hi Dan. (laughs) So (laughs) there's a cheesy. Yeah.
2: So we brought Dan in, um, to talk today about mountain lions, mountain lions are his specialty and something he knows a whole bunch about. And I know living here in Wyoming, most of us are pretty familiar with mountain lions and, um, just kind of bits and pieces about them, but Dan's going to get a little bit more in detail for us. So, um, one of the things I wanted to bring up is I read an article of yours a few years ago it was in 2018 it was called ghost cats and it was published in Wyoming wildlife, which is an awesome publication. If you guys haven't gone out there and read that or looked at the pictures that they have in their annual issue where they have a photo contest, you should definitely pick those up. Um, but you have this article in here and it talks about, um, mountain lions and kind of the management plan and what you guys are doing. So, um, I just wanted to see if you could kind of start us off by uh, talking about how mountain lions are expanding, um, sure. and kind of what the reason for that is, and kind of what's going on there.
3: Yeah, honestly, that's something that is near and dear to my heart. It's pretty fascinating to me the expansion of mountain lions. Uh, you know, they're we already knew how adaptable they were. They've uh, they've got the largest range of any terrestrial mammal in North or in the Western Hemisphere, other than humans. Um, But they still, even in the years of reduction, persecution, they still maintain themselves in the landscape just because of their life history. And what we're seeing now is pretty much wide-scale expansion to the east uh, across the the front of their distribution. Uh, It started, you know, one of the first uh, new breeding populations, I guess you'd call it, was the Black Hills. And that's where I did, that's where I started working on mountain lions and, Uh, you know well now (laughs) I'm getting old but uh, when I started you know 15 years before that you didn't talk about mountain lions in the Black Hills and now they're kind of you know they're the epicenter of mountain lion densities in a lot of places and it's just natural recolonization and as you see a population and it's true with all wildlife but Um, In the case of mountain lions, of course, they were basically extirpated from some of that range in the east. But, again, they're very adaptable. and They were able to naturally expand, most likely from Wyoming, and establish themselves like in the Black Hills. And then that population flourished, quite honestly. And now we have breeding populations in Nebraska, North Dakota. They're expanding east out of Colorado. Um, And then we're even seeing we... The managers are seeing expansion of Florida panthers uh, they're much more limited, of course, but uh the basically with some management and regulation, these animals are very resilient, and we're seeing that wide scale expansion to the east uh, with mountain lions and I shouldn't say just the east uh, we're, we're seeing expansion in their current range too, uh, where densities have increased, and there more movement among populations uh, and even north into toward Alaska. Um, and you talked about Alaska last time I'm there, they really weren't, there weren't a lot of records of them there, but they're seeing more expansion into like that Juno country and, uh, and just an overall expansion of the species in general.
1: So, you know, just to back up just a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, how did you get your start? Where, I mean, you're now doing large carnivore and I can tell you're super passionate about it <laughs> and I'm, I'm excited, but I want to let the viewers kind of, sure. how did you get to where you are today?
3: Oh, that's a that's like another podcast. Give <laughs> yeah, give us all uh, so, cliff notes. Sure, cliff notes. Um so I grew up uh grew up on a farm in Iowa. Uh a lot of Midwesterners end up in the West, I guess, and uh but I always I grew up, you know, with a lover of the outdoors and hunting and fishing and trapping and, and doing those things and uh for but for some reason I, I always wanted to work with wildlife. I knew from a young age. And um I went to college for wildlife and fisheries and somehow made it through <laughs> then uh, um, I went I got several and I, this is a career path for a lot of people in the wildlife biology wildlife management program is you spend a lot of years nomadic bouncing around from job to job three months here three months there
1: kind of study uh, jobs where they're doing a specific yeah, species yeah working study for grad for-
3: students working for states um I, I mean I've I've done my first wildlife job was songbirds, small mammal trapping, and habitat Yeah, that's what I am going to say. Yeah. is
1: It's typically not a you know, large jump carnivore. Into, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're doing a and a so, turtle study somewhere yeah. for three months. But, you know,
3: <laughs> at the end of the day, I think that makes you well-versed as a biologist. I think it's, it's great. And so um, I bounced around. I worked. I, I kind of got into the world of turkeys, wild turkeys. And uh, I ended up doing a master's on wild turkeys in the Black Hills. And so I had that in with the Black Hills. And then when I was finishing up, uh, it was serendipitous that this project opened on mountain lions. And I had no intentions of ever going, well, I didn't have intentions of going to graduate school, but things worked the way they did. And um, I put in for this mountain lion project, and I was fortunate enough to get it. And it was really, I mean, this was at the time where we were just understanding what's happening with this new, newly expanded population and it was a really neat time and and we caught a lot of cats and I learned a lot and um, it was just it was fun to be in that world and you know basically walking where the lion walks every day was my job and so I finished up there and and uh uh, there was an opening here at Wyoming Game and Fish and I, I interviewed for that and basically I was hired as the 12th game biologist was called at the time, but focusing on mountain lions, I did that for five years before moving into the position I'm in now.
1: So, in your free time, <laughs> would you rather hunt or fish? And what oh, would you rather be chasing? See, that's not fair.
3: Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I think I grew up fishing more, uh, because I, I, there was, where I grew up, There's a lot more fishing opportunity, and um there was only certain things to hunt, I guess, put it that way. I think if I was in Wyoming, we didn't have elk <laughs> well, and pronghorn. But, um, you know, I, I, it's obviously dependent on the time of year. But uh, I I, I really enjoy spring turkey hunting. Uh, obviously, I enjoy everything that we have to offer in the fall for hunting. Um, but I, I guess I... That's an unfair question. <laughs> <laughs>
2: He's torn. Yeah, I am torn because it's about
3: 50-50, and I, I don't, um, you know, a lot of times now it's more if I can get the kids out to do something like a rabbit hunt or take the kids fishing. and. Brookies in a high mountain stream yeah, right? in June, yeah. July. Yeah, and and I have no issues putting a worm on a hook at Lucky Pond outside of Lander because you can catch <laughs> fish, you know, um, with, with little kids you want to keep them that you don't have to put them on a death march the first time they go out. And so I think there's, there's a lot of great, you know, pond fishing opportunities for parents with young kids in Fremont County. So I do take advantage of that quite a bit and uh, try to get the kids out. Rabbit hunting is what I started with, so that's what I do with them.
2: I also just want to say congratulations. I saw you were one of the employees of the year for game and fish. Ah, I saw that in the in the you. magazine and just wanted to say congratulations. Cause that is a, that's a high award um, from you. the game and fish department. So it, it just shows that you, you truly are motivated by your job. You, you care a lot about what you're doing and, and you're giving back too. So I, I think that that part is really important and you being here today kind of shows that you're giving back and, Um, have a passion for the subject matter. I do. And
3: I I mean, an award like that's also more of a reflection of the people I work with and the crew in our large carnivore section. I mean, we're, we're a close knit family, quite honestly. And so I'd like to think of that as a reflection of the men and women in that as well too. So um, kudos to them.
2: So I want to get back to these cats. Um, You talked a little bit about how they've kind of been persecuted, killed off, uh, tell us the history of that.
3: So uh, like most of our large toothy critters in uh, North America, um, as with westward expansion, the, the goal was to eradicate mountain lions, wolves, and bears from the landscape. I mean, there's federal governmental programs to do so. Uh, mountain lions, there was bounty starting in the 1800s. Um, I've got, I don't have it with me, but like the amount of shillings you could get in Connecticut and places like that for, for taking a, a catamount, they call them there, and uh, most of those bounty periods extended into the, well, into the middle of the 70s anyway, 1970s for for mountain lions. Um, and so there was these programs to eradicate them, uh, poisoning pretty much any way you could. And then that persisted from, you know, the 1700s, well, before that, with westward expansion. And not not that the indigenous people didn't, Didn't take mountain lions as well, but those eradication programs really kind of started more in the 1700s, 1800s, and through the 1900s. So, But that, I mean, like I mentioned before, that's what was really unique, I think, about mountain lions is that despite all efforts to wipe them from the earth or wipe them from North America, they still, their life history, they're very reclusive and elusive, and they kind of just, they make a living without knowing they're, you, you don't know they're there. A bear, when a bear shows up in the neighborhood, you know they're there. <laughs> I
1: was going to say of, of the three, you know, grizzly bears, wolves, and and, and mountain lions, ha- having interacted and and witnessed all three in the field, and, and I, I I like all three. I think they're cool, but mm-hmm. there's something extra special about those cats because it's just your eyeballs almost don't believe. You know, bears yep. kind of, I wouldn't say clumsy, but they're a little cumbersome when they're walking. They're they're a little more noisy. You yep. know, they're they're quiet, but they're they're a little more. Wolves, there you can hear them all the time, and they're they're kind of they're a little more scattered, right? Yep. But a cat, when they, it comes, you know, out of a clear cut or up a draw or something, working a ridge, it's just it's almost like a ghost.
3: I mean. Well, and their whole life is built on stealth, and so yeah, absolutely, and and <clears throat> I think that's what's I think that's what invokes a lot of interest or and or fear with mountain lions is that that stealthy approach and uh, that that a lot of times they are out there and you just don't know it. And so, um, but, but definitely, I mean, yeah, I think you nailed it. Bears are not bumbling, but they're, they don't, they're more deliberate and uh, well, in a different way. Mountain lions are very deliberate, but very quiet about what they do. And if you've seen a mountain lion, um, you, you almost have to, you stop and like you look and it takes your brain a second to, to recognize what it is quite honestly. If you see a wolf, you know, you know, I mean, if you guys have seen a wolf, it's, it's obvious there's like. That's a wolf, and and bears are bears, but you just you don't see mountain lions. It's rare enough that you almost have your brain has to take a second to to figure out that that's what you're seeing.
1: But the wolves are running through the field almost like your your golden retriever, your German yeah. shepherd. They're 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 pack hunting. Yeah. Right? and the bears are they're either rolling rocks or working a trail, or they're 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 deliberate, like you yep. said. But the cats are just they they pause and they look back, and the twi- tail twitches and yeah. the, <laughs> and the ear twitches a little bit, and you look, and then they they spot you or they just keep moving and it's 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 eerie
3: yeah it is it is it's kind of a uh, there's almost a mystique about them that's i think pretty unique to to most large cats but i think you know a solitary animal like a mountain lion just it, it it does have a different mystique to it than the other animals that we have in wyoming
2: yeah and there's two predators that i always think about about especially when you talk about adaptability to their surroundings and one is coyotes Coyotes are everywhere and they figured out how to survive everywhere and mountain lions and they're extremely adaptable to humans and they figure out a way to exist where humans are and they they figure it out. And so I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit, just how kind of what you've seen um, working with these animals and how they interact in you know, human and urban areas. Cause I mean, California is dealing with it lots of different sure. places. So how do they do that?
3: Well, I think you already kind of attributed it to their resiliency and adaptability. And you know, again, <clears throat> we're, I mean, we've been studying them since the seventies. Um, when Morris Hornocker was one of the first people to put a collar on one, but it's in the evolution of, you know, since the Pleistocene 30, 40 years is not much. So we're still learning about them, but they, they can make a living wherever there's there's food and hiding cover. And that's what we're seeing in a lot of areas. Uh, the Colorado front right now has a lot of uh, where the basically the ex-urban, as they call it, where mountain lions are there, but there's a prey source. And what they're seeing in areas like that is they're eating a lot of raccoons and things like that. And what we've seen, we, we did some work in Rock Springs. Um, Justin Clapp, who's a Fremont County native— uh, he's our mountain lion biologist. Now we initiated some work down there, which is a little different lion habitat than what you'd expect in the, the wind rivers here. And then we see them eating more coyotes and pronghorn, things like that. And uh, the Dakotas, we saw them eating um, badgers and mink and things like that. And so th- they're very good at, at figuring out what's available. And, and then there's always specialization that occurs. And so uh, as that, you know as as we have more residential areas if there is a place for them to to go about their business and there's a standard food source they they can stick around
1: and house cats it.
3: they yeah, dogs they, they <laughs> really do like house cats yeah um and un- unfortunately you know for us the dog is kind of like another level up um mm. because they they naturally go away from dogs but uh when they start deciding they want to eat dogs that's usually when We come in from a management standpoint. Um, And there's issues with feral dogs and stuff where you can't blame a dog or (laughs) can't blame a lion for figuring that out as a food source. But those are all things that we weigh into into that risk. And, of course, when it comes to uh, to uh, domestics, domestic pets or livestock, it's really it's. Once they figure that out, it it can happen pretty quickly to decide that's a new food source. And that's why we'll usually come in from a management standpoint. And And it's typically an easier
1: food source for them, and they get habituated to it. Yep, yep. But, I mean, I want to touch on, so you you touched on it, but a mountain lion will go from birds, grouse, all the way up to deer, even elk or sheep. Yep. They'll specialize depending on what their habitat is, what's available.
3: Yep. Yeah, and, I mean, we, we see primarily... Uh, in Wyoming, and in, in the west, primarily deer is the main food source, but uh, we're definitely, some work in Jackson that that we worked, assisted with, uh, and there's more elk there, it's in the Grovant country, they were eating a lot more elk in proportion, and especially in the winter when they're, when they're able now, to be are stocked they, better.
1: Are they going after calves, or are they going after healthy adult?
3: Usually it's calves or cows, um, okay. and you know, talking with Elbrock, who was the researcher at the time, it's like we were talking about. You know, if there's three elk standing there, they're gonna pick the one with its head down. <laughs> you know that they can go to, uh, but but it's it is based on vulnerability, and but you'll get some toms like some big mountain lions. that will specialize on on larger elk, and you know it, you can look at it this way too. A a, a bull after rut is much more vulnerable than a, an adult cow. And so uh, they're a stock and ambush predator, so they're not you know, they're they're just whichever one they can get to and get killed quick is what they're going for.
1: What is kind of an average on ungulates a success rate on like a stock for a mountain lion?
3: Oh, that's a great I I don't even know the actual success rate on a stock. Um, they're they're pretty successful because of they're not the a coursing predator. That's so like with a, a wolf or a coursing even like a like so African they're not wild dogs, they, they 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 have a lot that they break off and don't aren't successful, uh, but most mount, once a mountain lion makes that commitment and gets close enough. I mean, sometimes they get away, but it's pretty rare. Once they once they get their teeth into the neck, I mean, they're very their predation technique is to they're they're basically evolved that their jaws and their teeth are meant to disarticulate the the vertebrae, and that's why deer they can do that a lot better. When they get a bigger elk, it's tougher. Or like in the instance of a rutting deer where there's a lot of neck, if they can't get around to it, um, then they might try a suffocation kill. But they're going to get their butts kicked with sharp hooves if it takes them a while. So it's all mm-hmm. part of that strategy, and they learn it through time. And But they're very efficient in what they do.
2: Yeah, you're talking about their physical abilities. Tell us more about that, like their leaping ability and some of the strengths that you guys have documented. Uh,
3: yeah, I mean, they're, they're very impressive as far as they can – I don't know exactly how high, but I mean, it's nothing for them to jump 10, 20 feet in the air over something. Um, You know, they're not a marathon runner for sure. And that's why like when we're trying to catch them, we'll use dogs. And once you once you jump the cat, they don't go very far and they'll go up a tree or or go in a hole or something like that. So they're not meant for marathon, like versus like a wolf that can run forever. But they've um,
1: evolved to run from wolves and learn that, hey, if I just run a short distance to the closest tree, exactly. the wolves will lose interest and leave.
3: Well, and that's, I mean, that's why you can still tree a, I mean, many a black lab or basset hound or non-lion hunting dog has <laughs> treated a, a lion over the years because it's a barking animal and thousands of years of evolving with, with canids that go after them is why they go up a tree, yeah.
2: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, they're, they're an impressive animal from a lot of different standpoints, whether it be, you know, you talked about their jaws being set up in, a, in such yeah. a way that they can disable an animal. Um, what are some other interesting things that people might not know about mountain lions and what they do? um you know whether it be when they're attacking prey or just other physical attributes that people may not know about well i
3: mean they're all muscle of course um they're it's impressive to see the musculature of uh especially like a adult male mountain lion that is just the the front shoulders the neck and head are just they you're kind of awestruck when you see them just the musculature of that animal of course, they have the retractable claws <clears throat> like all cats, except you know, cheetah is the only one that doesn't have retractable claws. But um, if you've never seen one up close, they are razor sharp and there's precision with those claws that they use when after they have an animal down. Um, and j- what again, just the just that,
2: anything that people may not know about them. I mean, they're. They're just an incredible predator. Yeah. I, I don't think people understand sometimes, like, especially folks who don't live out west and aren't around them, don't understand just how apex of a predator they are.
3: Yeah. And I mean, they, true. And then I think that's the, the one thing that, that we're seeing those changing dynamics with wolves. And that was one of the things we were talking about when I was working in the Black Hills is that, you know, I postulated that when I was done with my work, there's probably more lions there then. Than there were a hundred years ago because there was nothing to compete with but themselves, and we started seeing that with uh infanticide. So, like that's something mountain lions will come in and, and kill a litter. Uh, it's somewhat density dependent, of course, but uh, we do see that, and you see a lot of male on male aggression and fights, which are very impressive. I've I've heard them, I've never seen them. Uh, we actually had a we had an individual call <clears throat> outside of Spearfish, South Dakota, when I was over there. He had a He heard the fight behind his house. It woke him up, and uh, and there was this ridge line behind his place. And so we took dogs up there, and he said something about the cat going in circles. And we didn't think much of it. Well, we couldn't get the cat to tree, and finally did, and it looked and it kind of looked like a stroke victim, like half its body wasn't working, and so we and it was obviously in really bad shape. So we euthanized it, and um, I took it back to the lab and. And skinned it and did a necropsy. And, like, half of its head was mush, the muscle. And there was canine punctures through the skull. And that cat was still alive. It was from another, a, wow. bigger, a bigger male <laughs> that won that fight. But uh, there's a lot of that, those things that happen. Um, you know, one thing we're learning is there's a lot more interactions between them. Uh, as we get more GPS information on the animals, we do see there's more interactions. But they're still very much a solitary animal unless they're, mm-hmm. they're mating or unless they have young. Yeah, I
2: saw a thing on Facebook just the other day. They had five – there were five mountain lions together on this person's front driveway. I think it was in Florida somewhere. Yeah. But, you know, they were all caught on this porch cam, and there were five of them together. And they were like, man, this is really crazy behavior because typically that you yeah. don't have that many together. But there were five adult lions all in one spot.
3: Huh. And that was probably, you know, as those kittens – as they get older some people call them cubs i've always called them kittens as they get older they'll get almost as big as the female and a lot of those bigger groups we'll see is, is probably a, a female with four kittens like that uh, okay <clears throat> but we've seen like there was a um you know with trail cams and everybody's got a camera now on in their pocket and you get a lot more of these like here's nine cats together and you can usually look at them and tease out well here's this is the female and three kittens and this is a female and four kittens and it's two family groups on a kill or something like that but you know the black hills is an area where there's i've got a picture somewhere of like six different cats six, six different tracks going forward wow. like at two times and and it's so it's just it is impressive some of those interactions that you can see
1: and i mean i've i've had the opportunity to harvest a mountain lion and actually uh, consumed it and it's it's pretty good people yeah. don't know that but until you actually, and you've had the, the chance to kind of immobilize some of these and collar them, right? And, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's hard for me to tell people the the, the muscular structure of these animals is, it's unreal. I mean, yeah. they are purpose-built just machines.
3: The the sheer power in a mountain lion, it, it's hard to explain. I mean, but, you know, you think about this as an animal. A female's average about 100 pounds um, as an adult. Males can get up to can get up to 200 pounds that's extremely extremely rare but um i've we've caught multiple cats over 170 pounds and put collars on them and um <clears throat> you know the even those you can get an adult female to take down an adult cow elk you know there, there's hundreds of pounds difference there and then what's even more impressive is that is once they do it then they'll drag it 200 yards like it's nothing and so uh there is just there's a lot of power there like you said and um and I've had, <clears throat> you know, we we did a lot of immobilization and collaring when I was doing my research in the hills. And the first cat I ever caught, it was we actually taught. There were two <coughs> siblings, um, females, like seventy five pounds, dripping wet. They weren't that big, but the one was starting to come out of the drug, and we had to do one tightening on the collar. And I grabbed its tail, and it just did it like a little lunge and pulled me <laughs> me and her with it, half drugged. And so I mean, they just have they have a lot of power.
2: Wow, <laughs> doesn't make me feel too good about my chances if
1: no,
3: I ever
2: encounter one. <laughs> no. So, how
1: can someone tell the difference between you know? I, I think the most commonly confused is is an adult wolf, you know, possibly a, a canine, but usually a wolf and a mountain lion track. Can you explain to sure? Uh,
3: you know, the obviously the claws are always present on a wolf track, and they're generally not on a lion track. Uh, the big thing. The, the diagnostic thing to look for on a track is on the, the pad, you're going to see three lobes on a mountain lion where you won't on a wolf. Um, it's like a kind of like a smashed M. But depending on the substrate, you might not always get that. And wolf tracks are much more vertically oriented versus a mountain lion track is horizontally uh, oriented. And uh, basically look at look for those, the toes are more teardrop. And they're just, again, it's kind of a cleaner track usually on a mountain lion than a wolf. And I always say look for more than one track because if you just get one track, you can always find, Oh, there's no there's no claw there or there is a claw there. Um, but look at that. Look at the lobes on the front track. Uh, all cats have that three lobe. If you got a house cat, go out and look at their tracks and you'll see those, those three lobes on the bottom. That's really diagnostic on a cat track.
2: Yeah, we had a mountain lion come through our place. This was been years ago on my farm and it went and checked out our garbage can. It was just moving through mm-hmm. and uh, it had stopped by either previous or right after at my neighbor's house and killed some chickens. And yeah. And, uh, they called us all upset because they thought it was our St. Bernard. (laughs) And so I had seen the tracks in our driveway, you know, and I could tell they weren't dog prints. And I'll tell you, my St. Bernard's were pretty good size. But this track was way bigger than yeah. any kind of track that they put out, so it was kind of one of those things where you could easily tell that, I mean, it was massive. I could put my hand pretty much in it, yep. and uh, but it's just kind of funny because they they were upset about it because they thought it was a Saint Bernard. Well, they it was probably a eight foot high fence to get in there, and I was like, my dogs can't get over an eight foot fence. They can't even get over a four foot fence, you know, because they're just big, heavy St. Bernard's. So anyway, we went through all that, but they really are incredible and, and they do cover a ton of ground. Um, yeah. And and I know you you wrote about this in the article is that you're starting to learn how, just how much ground they can cover. So can you touch on that a little bit?
3: Yeah, that <clears throat> that was one of the things I was looking at back in the day when I was doing my research, um, the dispersal potential. And it's actually how we base our management plan. We know they move a lot between and among populations, but what became really interesting is these cats more on the eastern front of their range. Basically, you know, we've seen a move from the big, hor- the big horns to the Absorkas and to the Laramie um, and all throughout the West. But there, there's always another breeding population there. And so I guess my hypothesis was we had these cats leaving the hills, Black Hills, and they go east <clears throat> and they're going to find food they're going to find habitat, but they're not going to find a female. And that's pretty much what drives any young cat, like any male of any species, I guess, is looking for, you know, a, a, a ability to, to create progeny and, and and get your genetics out there. And so we had mountain lions from the Black Hills. Uh, we had one male that traveled over 600, 663 straight line miles is what we had. Uh, he disappeared, was hit by a train in Oklahoma. Wow. And uh, and so he wasn't done dispersing necessarily and and we've had so that happened early on and I thought well we thought it was a fluke, but we've had we had several males over 500 miles dispersed from where they were born and uh, and and those were collared animals. so we had a point of origin and where they ended up and a lot of them was like, this is the last point before their collar died or something like that so they could have went further uh the, there was a mountain lion that showed up in Connecticut that they got DNA on that through DNA analysis it was most likely a black hills mountain lion so that's a, i think it was 1800 miles or something wow. like that and and the newest thing and obviously to for true range expansion to occur you need the females to make that jump and usually uh the the life history of a mountain lion is if a female has two kittens one's a male one's a female the female set up shop close to the her maternal Female, her, her maternal, her mom, and the male will take off. I mean, that's just that's regardless of density, we see it in most carnivores. Um, but we in a high density situation like the Black Hills, we started seeing females make that jump and start dispersing. And so <clears throat> that same cat I was talking about that I grabbed its tail and it pulled me with it. That cat actually dispersed and we lost track of it. And. Didn't, we didn't know what happened, and we didn't get the collar off, so it was still wearing a collar. And like 12 years later, I get a call from Colorado Division of Wildlife about this mountain lion with a collar that was hit on the highway by Denver. And I said, yeah, we've been seeing it here a couple of years, like in the vicinity of this collared cat. Well, that, that was a female that dispersed from the Black Hills all the way basically to the eastern front by Denver and lived there her whole life. Wow. And so that's where you see that true range expansion occurring.
1: So what is an average lifespan of a cat?
3: Uh, So um, they can live 10 years. We've seen them over 10 years old, 12, 13. That's pretty old, though. 10 10 is pretty old for a cat. Um, You know, they reach their prime. Females will start breeding about three years of age. And males, and, and, like, if you've ever been around mountain lions, like, especially females basically... Once they get to that two to three year age, they don't get any bigger, but males bulk up through time. And so, like when they become, when they're like three years old, they start bulking up in musculature and their neck and shoulders, and they try to start being a a resident tom. And that's where we see these fights. Like a lot of three year old toms lose to a <laughs> the seven fights year old. To, yeah, tom. exactly. To a seven year old tom, because they they think they're they're big enough, but those seven year old toms have been around the block.
1: So it's like uh, a like a like a twenty one year old at a bar challenging yeah, a thirty five year old.
3: Quite honestly, yeah, it is. Um, and you see those, uh, you know, when that was one thing we saw <clears throat> in a high density population. Those old toms, you know, six plus, six to six to ten faces were all tore up, and they they earned their living for sure.
2: Yeah, and you wrote about the story that made national news. There was a, a cat that actually attacked a guy up by Cody, I believe it yeah. was. And it was pretty desperate, I think, at that point, and it was probably from wear and tear, I would guess. I mean, maybe you can tell the story and well, it give was us a, some.
3: Yeah, it was really unique. Um, the there was a guy cutting wood with a chainsaw, and uh, and the cat attacked him, and he hit it with the chainsaw to to knock it back. And you know, tough Wyoming. I oh that was weird, and went to bed went. Went and slept in his camper, called us the next day, and uh, and I wasn't involved with the actual capture or anything, but um, so it was like, Well, that's we need to find this cat, you know. And um, Luke Ellsbury, who has hounds that works for us, and, and Cody ran it, and we got it in a tree and could see there was something wrong with it and euthanized it. And I think it had a broken leg or something like that. And it's really yeah. rare for them to do something like that, obviously. And so, uh, but that, that particular situation, it was it was that in need of something and went after a guy with a chainsaw, which is not a smart move, I guess.
2: Yeah. And I guess just talk a little bit more about interactions with humans because they're not, they're not common. And so could you talk about that just a little? Sure.
3: Um, You know, we don't, we don't see a lot of of dangerous encounters between mountain lions and humans, at least when compared to like grizzly bears or something like that. Uh, As we see, you know, that we're seeing more of it, the Royal we, I should say, wherever there's mountain lions, you know, in California where there's, a higher density of of mountain lions and a a high density of people using the same landscape, uh, there's more potential for that. And so, but it's still extremely rare that we actually have actual um, attacks or fatalities attributed to mountain lions. And that's the, I mean, that's the only one really that we've had in Wyoming. Um, But we do have, where we see issues with mountain lions is more uh, livestock depredation with sheep uh, they generally are they're not much of an issue with, with other livestock, quite honestly. It, it's, it happens, but it's pretty rare. And uh, as far as human encounters, um, we talked about a little bit before, but it's, it's usually more of a pet situation. Um, and if they become habituated and start deciding that they want to live in town, then it's not. it's a recipe for that. Those things can escalate pretty quickly. And so those are usually what we'll see with dogs and things like that.
1: As a bow hunter, you know, my, my encounters have been, I'm mimicking elk, making elk sure. vocalizations. Very quiet, very still, right? They always sneak up behind me. Yep. And you, you never know. They j- all of a sudden, the hair on the back my neck stands yeah. up, and I just kind of look. And the, more than once, sure. 50 yards behind me, that you, you, like, get a tail flick or something. Like, There's a cat right there. Yep. You, yeah. You, but you don't hear them.
3: No, and they do. They sneak in. I've had bobcats come in on me turkey hunting, actually, when I was in Missouri. Um, but... But yeah, they will come in on that and but and honestly they are a curious animal. And they sometimes will walk up to you to see what you are if they're not sure. Uh but that's not necessarily threatening. But I'm not gonna tell anybody what their <laughs> what their threshold of, of, <laughs> of comfort yeah. is when they're with the mountain lion until you've worked with them. So, um but but generally they <clears throat> they just they kinda know not to mess mess around with people and that's why when they do, we react quite swiftly.
1: They have a pretty wide r- uh, range of vocalization as well.
3: Yeah, they do, um, and they don't—they don't <clears> have—they <throat> don't, have, don't vocalize as much as people think. Uh, we get a lot of calls. There's a there's a cat screaming behind my house. It's, a lot of times it's not, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, um <clears throat> we had a situation. We were uh, trying to capture a, a family group uh, in the groveant, and so we had. Uh, cage traps out and when we were doing it for research we'd, we'd sit on them all night and we had triggers to tell us when and it, like at one third one in the morning the both traps closed and so we went up we would just snowshoot up to them and we're going to work them up make it happen quick well it was there was two different family groups there we caught the female of the one family group and a like a six-month-old kitten of the other family group and so those they actually walked around us, and they were vocalizing to each other. They kind of do these chirps and whistles, and uh, that was really neat to be part of. I mean we worked them up really quick and set them on their way. but it was yeah to hear those the the kittens do a real whistle, and some of the vocalizations of females are a lot like a cow elk calling or calf, so mm-hmm. I think there's there's some things that are going on there too but they, there is kind of a neat little communication that occurs. it's pretty quiet just between especially a a maternal female and her kittens.
2: Yeah. What's the (laughs) statistics on how many kittens they have typically?
3: So like a nationwide average is two to three. Um, Just like 2.7, I think was the, is the average. And you know, that's pretty much what we see here. Once a female, I think um, comes into her prime, they're usually having about three kittens and usually about two of those will survive.
2: Okay. Yeah. That was was something I wanted to ask is how many of them actually make it to adulthood. So it's usually two.
3: Yeah, it depends. I mean, it's, uh, it's a sixty to seventy percent survival, depending on where you're at. I mean, certain areas have lower survival, of course, uh, but they're usually that fifty to seventy percent survival of kittens, and that's why they have two to three. And they, you know, they're kind of unique in that <clears throat> they can breed any time of the year, and so you don't have that. They're all born in the spring, like a like canids or like even bobcats, and so um, there's a definitely a birth pulse in late summer, early fall, which probably mimics. When those cats are coming of age, there's also neonates dropping on the ground, so there's a more food for them. Uh, but we've definitely documented um, kittens year-round, any time any month of the year.
2: So um, one of the questions that a lot of people have is, how do I react if I do come face-to-face with a mountain lion? Because it is different sure. than with bears, so can you talk about that a little?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as with everything, do not run. I know that's a basal instinct is to run. Um and so, with the mountain lion, you wanna keep it in front of you, talk firmly, and because, like I mentioned before they they instinctively know not to mess with with people I mean honestly, with the amount of people and mountain lions we have in the western u s if they wanted to, it'd be it would be a different situation. It'd be like zabo lion type of situation, but they they just know that we're the dominant to them.
1: I think you touched um, on one part is you know th- when they go to predate on an animal they want it looking away and down and mm-hmm. you know so if you if you can maintain that eye contact Correct. they they become
3: uncomfortable well and they, it's keeping them in front of you and it, honestly it's letting them know you're not a, a prey you're not potential prey for them and so um that's why and we do we we do uh, workshops throughout the state and we have a lot of information on our website and things like that about being safe in lion country because lions are the, I mean, they're the ubiquitous carnivore in the state. You can, you can run into one anywhere. And so, um, and there, I mean, there, there's never a a ton of them, but there's the potential. And so, uh, the big thing is, is like you said, um, keep them in front of you. Don't run. And sometimes you'll, you might, it might be a surprise encounter and they're just, they're literally trying to figure out what you are. I had one when we were trying to figure out if this female had kittens and, and I was sneaking in on her. She had a collar on her and I, I came up over a ridge and um, I stepped on a twig and it, I didn't know she was right there cause it was on the other side of a ridge and she was like right there. And uh, I stepped on this twig and then she, she went up and like at 30 yards turned and put her head down and came straight at me. And so like we say, make yourself look big, talk loudly. And I made myself look big and yelled a few expletives at the time <laughs> and, uh, uh, but she, the second I did that, because she didn't know what I was, and she did have kittens actually at the time, and uh, I, I threw my hands up in the air, and I I said some things, and uh, she picked her head up and went the other way. And so that's the one thing, I know it sounds silly, but make yourself look big, show that animal that you're not, you're not a deer, you're not something to, that they would normally want to have for supper, and um, they're going to go about their way the strong, strong majority of the time.
1: So coming from Oregon, there's some pretty strong emotions and feelings around cats. I mm-hmm. mean, especially in, you know, some of the quick stats, I know that their their target management objective is somewhere around 4,000 cats and the, the latest uh, numbers are 9,000 cats in the state. But I, I kind of, without getting very controversial, I just want to shed some light on running cats with dogs mm-hmm. and, and trapping cats, right? Because uh, have you done any, you know, leg hold traps where you've, you know, work the cat up and and then turn around and and let it loose and, I mean, because there's a stigma sure. that leg hold traps are, you know, instant death and there's a stigma that, you know, if if you treat a cat with dogs, you've basically, you know, somehow irreparably damaged that cat.
3: Sure, and I mean, the go to method of catching a catching a mountain lion is dogs, trained dogs. Um, <clears> then <throat> there's all kinds of different dogs that you can use, but. Generally, some form of hound or cur or combinations of those are used to, to basically track the animal. Um, excuse me. Like I mentioned before, the the actual capture part doesn't take that long. Uh, but again, you know, mountain lion can travel twenty miles in a night, and so when you set out on a track, you're always seeing how fresh it is first. And uh, and if you let the dogs loose, you know they're going to run it. But until they actually jump the cat. You might go eight, you might go nine miles and nine and nine tenths miles and then jump the cat and it's going to go 300 yards and then go up a tree. So that part is actually not very stressful on the on the animal itself. Uh, there's a study done uh, here in Wyoming, uh, Fred Lindsay, when he was still here, to look at uh, the <clears throat> stress hormones from running cats and whether it was negatively impacting them. And it wasn't unless you ran a cat multiple, multiple times in one day. So it's actually not it's not a, it's not impacting that animal overall to run it with dogs. And otherwise we wouldn't use it for research, obviously. And a lot of, there's a lot of houndsmen out there that are selective and they just want to run their dogs and they'll tree a cat and pull their dogs off. Cat waits and comes down the tree. I mean, most, some cats get aggressive in the tree, but most of, honestly, a lot of them look bored up there. Like, when are you going (laughs) to pull the dogs and just leave me alone? And so, um, that's just not, it's a tried and true method. And, and obviously, we're we're not going to do anything from it fits from a monitoring or research standpoint. We're not going to do anything to overly stress the animal. And it's just it's a really good method to. At to that catch point, an when the
1: cat's up the tree, you you you'll dart it, sedate it, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Work the cat up, and you're you're doing it in minutes, not hours, and then yeah. you're gone.
3: Yeah, yeah. And might. I mean, the drugs that we're using for mountain lions might oh. take about an hour, but that gives you time to to get all the information. I mean, I'm a big proponent. If you have an animal in hand, you take everything you can. That's not invasive to the animal take blood obviously and get genetics but you can learn a lot about the overall population by every animal you catch and that's why we we do that but but yeah from a hunting standpoint um the use of dogs is is a tried and true method it's I guess controversial to some people but there's a lot of bird hunters out there that use dogs as well and it's pretty it's a lot different than going out and beating the bush and I would hyposit
1: you know if you're the guy on the ground running behind those dogs you know that's it's not just drive down the road, open the truck, and it's an all-day or all-weekend endeavor, and you may not get it done. Yeah, and
3: and, you asked about that, how many successful times a mountain lion makes a kill. There's a lot of those you turn the dogs loose, and after I don't know how many miles and how many thousands of feet in elevation changes, you end up not getting to that cat and bringing the dogs back. So that happens a lot too. But, I mean, for me, um, whether you're doing it on foot, tracking their where they go or with dogs you learn so much about the animal by going where the animal goes and i that that was one thing that that's how i learned so much about mountain lions is we had all these cats um <clears throat> had radio collars, but it was the old school vhf where you had to go out and find them and so I, I just you you live where the lions live and you you get to see all the unique things they do i mean I'll go up and climb across the log because there's a log there, you know things like that. So I was fortunate enough to be able to do that.
2: So if you had to give advice to folks who actually want to hunt for these animals, because I know there are a lot of people who sure. get excited about it, what would you give them as far as advice on how to target them? Obviously, dogs sounds like a good way to go.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you if you know someone that has trained hounds, that's a really good way. I mean, that's the ninety mo- percent of our harvested lions are with with dogs and uh if you don't want to go that route i mean we talked about you're going to find lions in rough terrain where there's especially deer deer and elk and know what those tracks look like it's always good to go out after a fresh snow and look for tracks um and that's how most that's how with hounds we do it for the most part uh but you know there's there's people that have had success in calling as well Uh, be it the elk cow calf calls or distress calls Uh, you can get calls now that mimic or that are recorded mountain lion calls. I've tried those. I haven't had much success myself. But um uh but but you can use a lot of different calling strategies, especially if there's a high density. Um, if you can find a kill, that's you know, if you if you're really willing to do a lot of hiking on tracks, eventually you're gonna find a lion kill. And if you can wait on that, there's gonna be a mountain lion close. <coughs>
1: Excuse me. The kills I have found, it seems like, you know, they'll they'll go ahead and go for those internal organs first, especially exactly. the liver. Yep. And then they kind of cache it, mm-hmm. but they do come back and consume the rest of that animal, don't they?
3: Oh, absolutely, yeah. So, and you, I'm glad you said that. So, mountain lion, the things that we throw away usually are the highest protein, you know, and so that's what they're going to go for first. And when they when they make a kill, like I said, it's usually a neck bite. They're very clean when they make a kill, you know. We we do a lot of verification of what killed this or that, and it, whether it be um, native prey or livestock, things like that. And so, all the different carnivores have very typical ways of killing their prey. Mountain lions are very clean uh, on the, the neck or, or the, generally at the base of the skull, but sometimes neck, and there's sometimes they'll crush a skull on a smaller animal. But you don't see any of the, the business on the legs or the hind end like you do like with a canid or something like that, or like a bear's on, along the dorsal midline. But then they'll go in, they'll open up the rib cage, they'll, they'll take out the rumen first, and that, you'll, you'll find that somewhere close to the kill, off by itself but then they'll eat those internal organs right away Ah, it depends on every animal time of day whatever they might but take that front shoulder a little bit but they'll cache it they'll drag it to a place that um this that's not going to attract other avian scavengers especially and they'll cash it up and then usually two to three days they'll have it cleaned up
1: so for the the livestock ranchers i mean if if they get a kill kind of like patrick's misidentification with his canines mm-hmm. is uh you know, you really kind of got to do the necropsy to, mm-hmm. to determine what it was, right? Well, and call us. Yeah,
3: I mean yeah. that's what our job is, and and we're always available. And give us a call, and because we do have a compensation program, if it's from a bear, wolf, or a lion in certain areas, we're going to pay you compensation if it was done. And so, and it's a very equitable program. And yeah, just get a hold of us, and then we'll come look at it and tell you what we can do.
1: But, I mean, tracks is one way, but you could have multiple predator tracks around the carcass. And you really kind of got to come out and have have a specialist come out and determine how it
3: happens. Absolutely. And and we see that a lot, you know, in in northwest Wyoming where we've got them all. And uh, there's always going to be a bear on a dead carcass. You just got to determine if it was scavenging or or if it killed it. And so that's why we'll do that.
1: So what is the population density for Wyoming and what's the targeted goal to maintain
3: so we're we're a little different in that we don't have a number of mountain lions for the state we assess the populations through trend of um where whether the population's stable increasing or decreasing now we that doesn't mean to say we're not doing some targeted areas or getting densities and we're always trying to learn more about that but but basically our goal is to maintain lines in the landscape at regional density or at Different, differing densities depending on regional objectives. So, certain areas we might try to maintain a source population, but primarily we try to maintain a stable population. We've had several areas where we've our goal is to reduce the densities, and we have. And so, it's kind of that it's because of the way mountain lions move amongst populations, it's this kind of a source stable sink movement. But
1: you guys are letting them naturally disperse where they want to. There's no artificial relocation, displacement. Absolutely.
3: If there's that's one of the big, as you mentioned before myths um not so much here but the further east you go uh, the notion that as these animals show up in new areas it's always black helicopters or and this is seriously it's black helicopters or uh, semi trucks or hauling trucks that bring these animals in uh, what would be the benefit
1: of doing that
3: none <laughs> okay and the cost uh, would be what a lot uh, yeah but but I mean I, I people just when you get an animal like that, like we talked about that is an apex predator good at what it's doing gets people nervous and I understand that and um but then when the conspiracy theories start going around it's interesting when I was uh when I finished up the field component of my work I was living in eastern South Dakota like a mile from the Minnesota border I had this acreage I rented and the guy who owned it was really cool good old guy he knew his stuff and he came up to the ranch one day and said, so I ran into a guy at the gas station. He said he just saw a truck with eight, this is serious, with eight lions in it that they're, re- they're moving here to kill a deer. I'm <laughs> like, Kurt, come on, man. That's, that is <laughs> not true. No. And so and that, that's kind of the big thing that, that because of increasing deer populations in the Midwest and the East, that managers are bringing in mountain lions to take care of that. And that's absolutely false.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I do want to get a recipe from you because I know (laughs) that you actually have eaten mountain lion. And you say it's really good. David's had it. I've never had it. So tell us, if you were to have some mountain lion meat, how would you prepare it?
3: Depending on time of year um, and what cut of meat we're using. Uh, Like in the summer, if I had a back back strap, I would marinate it because it is a tough meat. (laughs) But you can marinate it. And just put it on a grill and kind of cook it like a pork tenderloin. I've had it that way. It's really good. Otherwise, it's it's a very crock potable, if that's a word, mm-hmm. crock potable uh, meat. And I've had it. Now, one thing I haven't done that I want to try, my wife makes a really mean green, green chili. Mm-hmm. I think it would make a really good green chili. I know um, a friend of mine has done that. And otherwise, um, uh, slow-cooked, like, uh, like a pork taco but a lion taco with lime cilantro and all the fixings guacamole so uh, why is there really a,
1: a palate difference between the canine and the cat species
3: as far as how they taste
1: yeah
3: i've never actually eaten the canine That's i well a, i shouldn't say that i think i have when i was in africa i had it but that was a domestic dog <laughs> i guess um i think it's because of, again the the canids are built for endurance and marathon and so they're they're you know you look at the uh, skinned canine any of them and there's nothing to them you know the mountain lions have a lot more meat so i think that's going to impact the flavor of that meat like it would you know like a skinny skinny deer versus a fat deer you know there's going to be difference in taste that's probably why
1: and i mean i i've had both carcasses skinned and hung and i i haven't eaten a canine so yeah and, and i don't know if it's it it's not such a mental thing. It's more just if you were to look at the two side by side, one looks appetizing, the other doesn't.
3: Yeah, it's a darker meat on a canine, and it's just there's not as much to it. Um, that's not, not to say I wouldn't try it. I just, um, yeah, I'll, I'll try just about anything. But
2: Sure, and I know, David, you like it, so how do you like to prepare it? So I've had it
1: uh, just on the barbecue, but we've also uh, made jerky out of it, and it's actually a very good
2: jerky.
3: Uh, I be- I've never had that. Try that.
2: So what would you say to the folks out there that are afraid to try it? Because it is a cat. I mean, you two have had it. So what would you tell them?
3: Well, the, what you do is you trick them. You don't. <laughs> try <laughs> this piece of jerky. It out it out of and out they out. say,
1: oh, that's good. That's oh, well, what you, you, know.
3: you just ate. Yeah. <laughs> Bob no, I mean, again, I, I guess what I would tell people is it's, I mean, it's very similar to uh, to pork, the overall texture, except you don't have the fat marbling that you would with the, with, with, uh, swine so um but i mean
1: i would concur with with you know just overall appearance texture it's
2: not again it's not saturated fat like pork but it's it would be like a really really lean pork yeah it'd be something that you know so would sound good like in a crock pot with some you know green chili or you know something like that doing a pulled pulled pork carnita
1: type deal
2: i mean that would probably be really good so i'll go as far to say if if you're out there and
1: you have one and you don't want to eat it I'll take it. I'll eat it for you. Yeah, no,
3: and I—that's I, true. I mean, the, it's it's worth saving that meat and trying it, and you know, it's always good if you're at a wild game feed to to bring in something different. So it's going it to be a small game, but it's always going to everybody's going to try it. Unless it.
1: you're a houndsman, it's going to be a little bit hard
2: to procure that
1: consistently.
3: Well, yeah. true, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
2: Well, cool, Dan. I really appreciate you coming in. Um, Mountain lions are obviously a really great species that we have here in Wyoming, and it's cool to hear a little bit about how they're being managed and um, just learn more about those cats. I really appreciate you taking the time today.
3: Yeah, anytime. Thanks, guys.
0: And now it's time for the Radcast Outdoors Recipe of the Week, made possible by High Mountain Seasonings, a Riverton business. Check out their latest seasonings at HighMountainJerky.com. That's H-I-M-T-N-Jerky.com, H-I-M-T-N-Jerky.com. And use promo code H-M-S-10, that's hms ten. For 10% off your next order, High Mountain Seasonings.
1: If you've made it this far, congratulations. We're now to the recipe of the week. You've just finished another episode of Radcast, and I'd like to share with you another favorite recipe of mine, which is smoked salmon dip. It's pretty simple. It takes a few ingredients. The hardest one is procuring the smoked salmon and smoking it to your specifications. I then take... The smoked salmon, mix it with a package of cream cheese. I cut regular onions and wild onions, mix it all up, put a drop of liquid smoke in it.
2: It is to die. For.